So let's begin by exploring the book of Obadiah. It's actually the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. So apart from those committed souls who have done their 20 minutes in the chair this morning, would anyone like to tell me their favourite verse from Obadiah? Exactly. No one has one. That's because if you read the book of Obadiah, it's pretty much all bad news. There is not a lot of good stuff in there. I looked up Obadiah in my handbook to the Bible. This is their opening line. They gave it one page. The first line says, Nothing but his name, which means servant of God, is known of this prophet. That's it. So I'm thinking, right, I've got 30 minutes to talk about this guy, and they know nothing about him. Hopefully, he said some pretty uplifting, inspirational stuff that I can talk about. Nah. <laughs> it is a pretty bad book, really. <laughs> no, it's a good book. Uh, so, for those of us, like myself, who knew nothing of Obadiah, we've got a little clip that we'll show you. That'll hopefully give you a little bit of context. Watch it, it's actually really cool, and then I'll come back in a second. The book of the prophet Obadiah. This is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. It's a mere 21 verses. And at first glance, it does not look very promising. It's a series of divine judgment poems against the ancient people of Edom, which was a nation that neighbored Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. However, there is way, way more going on here. So first, here's the backstory. The people of Edom were unique because they had a shared ancestry with the Israelites. They both belonged to the family of Abraham who, with Sarah, had their son Isaac, who, with his wife Rebekah, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, the book of Genesis told us the story of these two brothers, and to say the very least, they had a tense relationship. They each later received the names Israel and Edom, which eventually became the name of the families that descended from them. And these families replayed the same difficult relationship of their ancestors. Israel and Edom had enormous tensions throughout the centuries, but they still shared that family bond. And it's that bond that was betrayed and shattered in the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon. So when Israel was invaded and conquered by Babylon, the people of Edom took advantage by plundering other Israelite cities and then capturing and even killing Israelite refugees. Now, in other prophetic books, God held Israel's neighbors accountable for this kind of violence. And so here, Obadiah does the same for Edom. The short book has two halves. The first part is a series of accusations against the leaders of Edom, specifically for their pride and self-exaltation. Literally, as they lived up high in the desert rocks, but also metaphorically, they truly believed they were superior to the Israelites. And it's that pride that led the Edomites to not just stand idly by when Babylon came to destroy Jerusalem, but actually to participate in the destruction. And so God says through Obadiah that Edom will be brought down from their height and destroyed. As they have done to Israel, so it will be done to them. Now, right when you think you're going to hear more about how Edom will meet its doom, the topic suddenly shifts in verse 15. We hear this, the day of the Lord is near against all nations. 
Now, why do we all of a sudden shift from Edom now to all nations? This first is a hinge piece, and it links the first half of the book to the second half, where Obadiah announces the day of the Lord, but not only for Edom. He widens his focus to include all nations. And Obadiah says that all prideful nations that act like Edom will face God's justice in the same way. They'll fall from their prideful heights and come to ruin. Now the combination of these two sections, one about Edom, the other about all nations, shows us why Obadiah was so interested in this tiny southern neighbor of Israel. Obadiah sees Edom's pride and fall as an example, an image, of how God will one day confront the pride of all nations and bring about their fall too. It's hardly coincidental that in Hebrew the word Edom, or Edom, is spelled with the exact same letters as the word humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam. In Obadiah, Edom's rise and fall is a parable of how God's justice will one day oppose pride and violence among all nations in the day of the Lord. But as in all the prophets, God's judgment is never his final word. Specifically, remember the conclusion of the two books that came right before Obadiah, Joel and Amos. Joel had painted a picture of what will happen after the day of the Lord against all nations. He said that God would perform a new act of salvation in Jerusalem and that all who humbled themselves and called upon him would be delivered. And in the conclusion of Amos, he said that after the day of the Lord has judged Israel's evil, God would raise up the house of David and build a new kingdom for Israel that would include Edom and all the nations called by my name. And so the book of Obadiah has been placed right after Joel and then Amos to expand on these very promises about the hope of God's kingdom over all of the nations. And so the book concludes with a very hopeful future. God says he's going to restore his kingdom over the new Jerusalem, that he'll repopulate it with a faithful remnant. And then from there, God's kingdom will expand to include all the territory and nations around Israel. And so this little book contributes to the larger portrait of God's justice and faithfulness that we're seeing in the prophets. The ancient pride and betrayal of the people of Edom becomes an example of the greater human condition, all of the ways that we betray and hurt each other and God's good world. But there's hope, Obadiah says. Edom's downfall points to the day when God will deal with evil in our world, but also bring his healing kingdom of peace over all the nations. And that's what the book of Obadiah is all about. So I kind of thought we could just stop there and go home, but uh, it's pretty good. We've got a bit more to do. Uh, it's not all bad, though, Obadiah. All right. Um, so, as I said, our theme today is walk as family. And the book of Obadiah is, is kind of like an end point. It's an end point of a family's story. And it's a bit of a bad ending. It's the result of not walking as family, basically, to get to Obadiah. The book of Obadiah that we saw is the end result of a massive family feud, basically. It's a feud that began hundreds of years earlier with Jacob and Esau, as we saw, but it's a feud that's been around almost since the very beginning. In Genesis 4, we read about two brothers, Cain and Abel. This is the first family ever and only four chapters into the history of the world, we get a feud with disastrous consequences. So Cain becomes jealous. He becomes angry with his brother because God didn't accept his own sacrifice. Cain's heart wasn't right, but for some reason it was his brother's fault, he felt. And so he ends up killing his very own brother. Four chapters into the Bible, we get the first murder 
he kills his brother, and then God comes to him afterwards, and he says, where is your brother? And you can imagine the attitude, those with teenage kids, you can probably, his answer was, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? You know, he's just killed someone, but that's his answer. Am I my brother's keeper? I want us to think about that question. Are we our brothers, our sisters' keepers? Do we bear some sort of responsibility for our family? Now, the answer, of course, is absolutely. Yes, we do. That's what family's about, looking out for one another. It's a group of people thrown together who are supposed to have each other's best interests in mind. They're supposed to be completely unconditional love for each other. Now, if we jump ahead another thousand years or so, we get to the start of today's story. We get to two brothers, Jacob and Esau, sons of Isaac and Rebekah, descendants of Abraham. Now, these two boys take family feud to the whole next level. Their poor mother, they started fighting before they were even born, these two boys. In Genesis 25, we get this passage. It says, the babies jostled with each other within her. I don't, I've never been pregnant. I imagine that's not a great feeling, two twins fighting while you're pregnant. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So as we saw in the clip earlier on, today, on Obadiah, his prophecy was for Edom. It's a basically the result of an unresolved family feud. Two brothers whose feud continued for hundreds of years. It's a feud with jealousy, arrogance, belittling, and ultimately death for many, many people. The book of Obadiah is, for us, a warning sign, I think. It's a flashing red light. It's a siren. It's telling us to look out and to make sure we get family right. I'm hoping none of our family feuds will end up in two complete nations divided and fighting for hundreds of years. But it is a warning for what happens when you don't walk as family. So what sort of things does Obadiah specifically warn us about in his book today? It says in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. So pride is certainly an issue that we need to be aware of. The Edomites were a very prideful nation. In verse 8, it says, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? Again, they thought they were smarter than everyone else. They thought they were better. They lived on a hill and they literally looked down on everybody, but also figuratively looked down on everybody else. Then in verses 10 to 14, we get a whole bunch of stuff that Obadiah is warning about. He says, Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, it's a nice word, uh, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, 
nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity on the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the days of their trouble. So in those verses, we've got a whole heap of stuff that Obadiah is warning us about. Things like violence, aloofness, which basically means being distant or detached or unresponsive to the needs of people around us. We've got gloating in others' misfortune, boasting, kicking people while they're down, failing to stand up for those in need, greed, theft. That's a pretty tough list for someone to speak over you as a nation. Edom was guilty of all of those things against ultimately their own family. They came from two brothers, these two nations, and they hadn't treated each other well. And of course, it doesn't end well for Edom. We heard in those verses that you will be completely destroyed. And by 70 AD, Edom completely disappears from history, never mentioned again, gone, wiped out. So how do we walk as family then? If that's our question for today, what does it mean? And what are we saying when we use the word family? We heard beautiful things in those thank you prayers, the word family mentioned over and over again. So firstly, let's just look at a a nuclear family, parents and children. Now, the majority of the verses in the Bible that specifically mention children are actually for kids. So kids, stop your drawing for a little moment, ears on. I'm really sorry, you're not going to like necessarily what I'm about to say but you need to hear it. All right. Exodus 20, verse 12, Proverbs 6, verse 20, Matthew 15, verse 4, Proverbs 1, verse 8, Colossians 3, verse 20, Ephesians 6, 1 to 2, and Deuteronomy 5, 16, pretty much all say the same thing. They say something like, children, honour, listen to or obey your parents. So kids, you've got a bit of responsibility there. If your parents are telling you to do something, it's mentioned seven times, at least in the Bible, that you're supposed to do that. So hopefully you can stick with that. But if you want your family to be the best it can be, kids, then you need to listen to your parents. But parents, as the saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility. So if you're going to be telling your little minions what they need to be doing, and they're going to obey it, you better make sure you're saying the right stuff. So, let's have a look at some of the things that the Bible tells us as parents we should be doing. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And then in Proverbs 22 Verse 6, it says, start children off on the way they should go. And even when they were old, they will not turn from it. We have a bit of responsibility, parents, to make sure our children get the best start they could. As a teacher, I see every day that the adage, the apple never falls far from the tree, is very much true. When I meet parents for the first time, I quite often get the, "Uh uh-huh moment. It explains a lot. It can be very much a positive that the apple never falls far from the tree or very much a negative. 
but it's true for many, many people. It's a generalization, yes, but it is true. It's said that a large chunk of a person's character, their personality is formed by the age of seven, and those traits will be with that child for the rest of their lives. So those influences for the first seven years of a child's life will shape a big chunk of their character forever. Yes, you can develop character as you go, but those things that are learned before the age of seven will quite often stick with you forever. And who are the longest or the largest influence in a children's life in those early years? Parents, of course. We've got a big responsibility, parents. So if you want to give your children the best chance, and we're all parents here of the children of Door of Hope, if we want to give our children the best chance, we need to be making sure we're setting the best example we can. Pay attention to things like the words we use, how you speak to others, your children will mimic those things. Pay attention to where we prioritise our time because our, our children will watch those things and see that that's important to us, it must be important. Pay attention to your generosity towards others because we're called to be generous people. Treat others with respect. Here's some adverse advice from the Bible. We've got some stuff from Timothy. It says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we've got a responsibility to provide for our family. Now, that verse doesn't actually say parents. It says anyone who does not provide for their relatives. So that's actually a collective responsibility. We are called to provide for our family, be it our home family or be it the family of God. That's one of our callings. Now, in Acts 10, we hear about this man, uh, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, this is just one guy, but there's some stuff in there that we can learn from. He was a generous person, as I said before. So, it's obviously in there for a reason. He was God-fearing. And his family was prayerful. We've got some traits there in our family that we need to make sure we have. This is the big one, though. In Colossians 3.13, it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Family doesn't work without forgiveness. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family, as they say. You can't quit on them. You can't trade them in for a better model. You can't walk away. They're your family, warts and all, whether you like it or not. And if you can't forgive them, it's not going to work. You need to be able to forgive, but you also need to be able to receive forgiveness from them when you make a mistake. All right. Last year, my family and I... Last year, that's scary to say, isn't it? We took a trip in our caravan, my wife and kids, uh, for three months. Now, if you put a family together in a confined space with no fixed routine and long drives, it's a recipe for some challenging times. And our parenting was certainly tested. We had some pretty good tantrums, didn't we, Claire? For how many hours was that one? Like five hours in the car with a screaming child in the back? Not much fun. It was still the best thing we've ever done in our lives, but... 
we had to learn some stuff pretty quickly. So just from our perspective, some of the things we learned as a family to help us be stronger is that you don't need a lot of stuff to be happy. Yes, we had a caravan, but it's a pretty basic setup. Our kids literally had a small box of toys that big for three months, and they were happy. Despite what your children may say, you do not die without a television. We took our television out of our caravan quite deliberately for three months, and it was great. No screen time. Play more board games. We played board games flat out. The family time you have, the learning opportunities you have through a board game is immense, and it's something that we've continued since we got back. We play them every day, just about. Some sort of game with our kids. Get out and appreciate the wonder of God's creation. Go for a walk on the beach. Go to the park. Go for a drive and see something amazing. But do it together and appreciate those beautiful things that God's created for us. And finally, learn to make good coffee. That's not biblical, but if you're going to set a good example for your kids, it it, uh, pays to start the day well. All right, and the last thing that I would say is that it's not healthy to compare your family to anyone else's family. Certainly in regards to social media. You cannot compete with another family's highlights package. It's just not possible and it's not real. People don't post the five-hour tantrums on a drive. People don't post the dirty washing. People don't post the fights. People don't fight, uh, post the tired children, the I'll be home late tonight, the I don't want to eat that, I don't like that, I'm a vegetarian this week. People don't post the you've been up since 6 a.m. and now it's 8 o'clock and we're about to leave for work and you haven't got your shoes on. That one never happens to us. Um, you know what I mean. You can't compete with other people's families. You shouldn't have to compete to other people's families. Be happy. God put you together for a reason. Whether you liked it or not, you're together, you're a family, and God has a plan for you guys. He made your family just the way it's supposed to be. But we heard a lot of things from Amanda this morning about the family of God, the family of Door of Hope, because we are a family. Now, your biological family might not be exactly as you would like it to be. You might have separation for all sorts of reasons from your family. You might have irreconcilable differences from your family. You might have unresolved feuds that have been going on for generations like Jacob and Esau. But no matter what, we all are part of God's family, Door of Hope family, the family of God. No matter what your other family is like, you have a family right here this morning. So do those same principles apply Absolutely. We have a collective responsibility for each other in this room. I don't think you can sum up much better how family is supposed to work than the verses that are spoken at pretty much almost every wedding ever. You know what it's going to be. It's normally spoken over a couple, but it applies beautifully to family. It's from Corinthians, of course. It's Corinthians 13, verse 4. And it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is, uh, sorry, it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's a pretty 
foolproof checklist right there for family. I used to teach a lesson to my grade two class where we looked at that passage and then we wrote a recipe for love. If you were cooking love, what would you need in your recipe? And we would make love cakes and love pizzas and love milkshakes, whatever they wanted, but it had to have those ingredients. You had to have a pinch of patience or a cup of self-control or whatever the ingredients were on our list. And the kids really liked it. But looking back at those verses, it's actually more than a recipe. It's the perfect recipe for family and how to walk as family. Because without all of those ingredients, your family doesn't work, be it your home family or the family of God. To walk as family, you need to have patience. You need to have kindness. You need to have humility. You need to have forgiveness. You need to have cool tempers. You need to have protection, trust, hope, and perseverance. That's a pretty good list to follow if you want to walk as family. So I think if Paul was around back in Jacob and Esau's day, then I wouldn't need to be here today because the book of Obadiah wouldn't have existed. But it does. So Door of Hope, I'm going to finish right there. We started with the question, how do we walk as family? And I think we've finished with the answer. The answer is love and those ingredients that you need for love. As you go into your week this week, why don't you sit down with your family, whatever that looks like for you, and have a look through that list from Corinthians. Tick them off. Are we doing those things? Do we need to work on some of those more for our family to walk as family? Or are you going down the path that leads to a book like Obadiah? Amen.